Hi! Hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me, an evangelical in my early 20s, into a deep dive into the history of Christianity, history of the Bible, the biblical canon, why some churches worshipped one way, other churches worshipped a different way, and where that all came from and what all happened. It was then on that journey that I encountered the ancient Catholic Church. It looms large there in, in theology and in Christianity, and it was unavoidable. And it was then as I began to read from actual Catholic sources, what Catholics actually believed, that I realized what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I knew about the Catholic Church, was based in large part on misinformation and more often than not on, on very simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And my guest this week is just the perfect guest for this show. He, he is the cordial Catholic, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm talking about Eric Ybarra. He is a convert, a revert from Protestant Christianity to the Catholic faith and has a fantastic story to tell. It's a story of looking for the true church beginning as a, as a kind of a nominal Catholic, entering into a very fervent stage as a Protestant Christian, and looking into Anglicanism and, and the ancient faiths, Orthodoxy and Catholicism, and figuring out, is there, is there a church that, that Christ founded, and what does it look like, and where can it be found? It's a great deep dive into that, that question as that kind of unfolds in Eric's journey. And, and what a journey it is. Great storyteller, great story to tell, and a fantastic cordial guest in, in Eric. You're going to love this conversation. Of course, this conversation and all others on this show are brought to you by our generous supporters, our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and one-time donors at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. I have you guys to thank for helping this show to keep going and to keep growing. Just this week, the, the monitor for my computer in the studio here just completely went kaput. It was quite old. I was being thrifty and keeping it going by kind of Frankensteining it in, in place. It, it died, and truly, guys, I could not afford a replacement if it weren't for you. The show would just be dead in the water, just like that. So thank you. Head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic if you want to know how you can support the show and some of the things I try and give back to you you guys who, who do that. And thank you for your support. And now, without any further ado, my fantastic conversation with Eric Ybarra on looking for the true church. It's a great one, guys. You're going to love it. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for watching. Thank you for listening. If you are watching on YouTube, please make sure you subscribe to this channel, hit the bell so you get the notifications of our new videos and those kinds of things. Leave some comments as well. Interact. I'd love to get your comments and your feedback and those kinds of things and to help this channel to keep on growing. If you are listening 
on on podcast. Well, thank you. We're also on YouTube, youtube.com slash the cordial Catholic, where you can see my toque hair that I'm sporting and just got back from walking the dog here in the Canadian winter. And I got this thing called toque head, which is a winter hat you wear up here in Canada. <laughs> I'll stop myself now, Eric. My guest this week is Eric Ibarra. I am so excited to have him on the show. He is a revert to the Catholic faith from Protestantism. He's an author of two pending books from publication on the papacy and the filioque, and has spent the last 10 years studying the schism between Catholics and Orthodox. He's a speaker and appeared on various media outlets, including uh, as co-host of Reason and Theology. They have a fantastic YouTube channel. I'm sure you've heard of them. He is living in Florida with his wife and six young boys. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here, and hello. Oh, I, I appreciate the invitation, and uh, I am extremely privileged. I'm happy to be here and look forward to this. Well, thank you very much. And I'm pretty sure I, I mispronounced Filioque at the intro there, didn't I? Did I get – that's tough. Oh, you know, I hear I hear different – you know, some some people, they just speed through certain, you know, one or two of the syllables. Like <laughs> Filioque, you know, people want to emphasize the quay. Some people want to emphasize the um, the I as an E, so Filioque. Or some people say Filioque, like Philip. So I, I, I can't say which one is right. Okay. They all, they're all fine. Yeah, yeah. All right. It's not like the Augustine versus Augustine. Uh, oh, that uh, one's the, tough. The, the debate. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not like. No, that. you're in Florida, so you even see more confusing. <laughs> yeah. No. Over here, over here, for some reason, as much as of a, as much as I love Saint. Uh, St. Augustine over here. I can't kick the habit. The city is St. Saint Augustine and that's just how it will always be. Um, so I, I have a two tongue on that, on that issue. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Well, Eric, I want to dig into your, uh, your faith journey. Uh, listen, and I want to begin by, by, by building you up a little bit because this, this show is perfectly suited. I think for someone like you, this is the cordial Catholic. Of course, I always say it's a, it's an aspirational title. I'm, I'm working my way there to, to being a cordial Catholic, but you're a guy that I've seen in all kinds of places on reason and theology in different debates and discussions and dialogues. I've read your blog for a number of years and articles you write there. And you're a really cordial guy, Eric, you're, you're, you're compassionate, you're thoughtful, you're kind with your words, you're generous with your praise. And so I thought I have to have you on the show because you're the perfect fit for this show you i think you are the the cordial catholic in this conversation eric <laughs> wow well you know we can get away with that with the uh, the little exposure that that, uh, that 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 is out there about me i can assure you uh with six young boys uh there is a wrath of dad um, that the world hasn't seen. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I'm kidding. But uh, I really appreciate uh, the, the kind words. And uh, I, I've just kind of learned from a lot of good examples, uh, uh, examples which I've not really molded perfectly, obviously. But just uh, what, we're, what we're seeking to do here is we're seeking to grow in knowledge. You know, and saving knowledge, the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's the goal, there's a certain way to achieve it. And I, I find that there are certain ways that hinder it. And a lot of those ways are, you know, invariably uh, turning back to those vices of, you know, combative uh, rhetoric, um, just the, the traits that we all know that are just kind of ugly online. It's a, there's a very, one of the things I came to conclude uh, years ago was that 
most people are really not themselves online. Um, just like most people are not themselves during road rage, you know, when people are getting upset on the road. And so I, I tend to think of these as just figments of who people really are. But I think it's a good habit to try and interact with people online, two eternal souls on, on opposite sides of a yeah. screen as how we really are. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's fin- that's fantastic. And a good slogan, the Internet, one big road rage. I, 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 <laughs> let's try and call the range. Yeah, absolutely. OK, let take us back in the time machine, Eric. I'd like to know um, for you, your faith journey. And I mean, go back as far back as you want to go. I mentioned you're you're Catholic revert as, as a Protestant. So I'm curious to know how this unfolds. But bring us back to as early as you want to begin and then let's go forward and let's let's dig into some things along the way that uh, maybe were reasons for conversion and, or, or, or deconversion in the first place. And I, I'm curious to know uh, where this goes. So I'll kind of step back a little bit and let you tell a bit of your story here. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to find out. Sure, I'd love to. In any moment you'd like to interrupt me or you have a question, pl- please uh, uh, feel free to, uh, to, to interject. Um, but, you know, I, I was born here uh, in Miami Beach, Florida, and so I was raised in a uh, Hispanic household. Uh, part of our Latin culture is is going to the Catholic Church. So I was baptized as an infant, um, was some of my earliest memories are in the Catholic Mass, Um and my grandmother, she had uh, the picture of the Sacred Heart of Jesus Christ on my wall as a child. I, I was raised by my grandparents, by the way, but my grandmother had this this Sacred Heart uh, picture on my mirror, sort of like in the indentation between the mirror and the and the shoulder mold. And so every every time I'd wake up in the morning, that was the first thing I saw. And I remember being freaked out a little bit because. I used to think that the eyes were following me <laughs> and this was like going back to like, you know, five, six, seven years old. Um, and it was always something that I know I couldn't prove to anybody, but I just had this inner fear that that's was that was going on. So, um, but uh, you know, so I went through the sacramental process of received my first communion. Um, but uh, then I, I, I started to befriend someone who I thought was a lot smarter than I was. Um, He was just so sharp and knowledgeable. And so we started to hang out uh, quite often, go over each other's house. And I noticed that, uh, you know, he was much more profound than my, myself and my family members and some of my average friends. And the more I got to know him, know him, uh, I realized that he, he was a skeptic. And so uh, we went out to breakfast one day uh, and it was a Sunday morning. Um, I had slept over his house and I, I popped the question to his dad. I said, you know, I, I noticed you guys don't go to church. And his dad looked at me and said, well, you know, I think that um, Jesus Christ is true. But uh, I resolved to never impose that on my children and I want them to think for themselves. And so my friend um, he was very smart and he got me into reading this, uh, fantasy science fiction book series called the sword of truth, which was written by Terry Goodkind. I'm sure some of the listeners here who uh, are familiar with that know the Anne Rondian bent of the author. Um, but he sort of had, uh, there was this epic 
uh, fiction where the Richard, the main character, was uh, just very smart. He had certain gifts that he didn't know that he had, you know, powers that he didn't that he had that it took him years to find out that he had and find out that he was a wizard. Um, But all the other characters in the book who were kind of uh, making wrong decisions or always doing, you know, were always unsuccessful. Whereas Richard was successful. Um, It was because of his skepticism and the religious people around him were always sort of um, always uh, having presumptions and assumptions and sort of supernatural anti-intellectualism. And and so I just sort of was drawn to that. And so very early on, like around 12, 13 years old, I was bringing uh, scientific books to mass. You know, I would stand when everybody else was standing, but I was reading, you know, uh, trying to understand the mathematics of Oppenheimer, reading things about Einstein, just trying to, you know, um, beef up my brain and try to be as smart as I possibly could. Um, and so I went through high school as a, as an atheist and it got to the point where, when I looked at religious people, I looked at, you know, people at mass because I went I, I kept going to mass till I was around 15 years old. And that's when my grandfather finally said, it. you know what, it's your choice. You know, now, if you don't want to go, you don't have to. Um, but what I felt was I, I felt like all these people who were praying and uh, filling, filling their their lives with all these details about God, it was kind of like somebody getting on a six foot ladder to collect all the stars of the universe. It's, it's so far out there and, you know, a six foot ladder is not anywhere near the fur, the the closest star. So I just thought there's no way that we could be so sure about all these details about God. He hasn't written anything in the sky. He hasn't, uh, you know, made things clear. So it's just, I just didn't believe it anymore. Uh, but then I went to university and uh, we had this anonymous roommate system there at the University of Central Florida uh, where you don't know who you're going to move in with in this particular dormitory. And so I, I moved in on a Sunday and uh, I was eager to meet uh, my anonymous roommate and he wasn't there the whole day. Um, and I, I would find out later exactly why he wasn't there on Sundays and every other Sunday after that, he was not there either. Uh, But he had libraries of books on his side of the dorm. And I saw all these Bibles, different different versions of the Bible. I saw um, a lot of scientific and and philosophy books. And I thought, wow, this is an interesting character. I've never seen somebody with this kind of a library. And so we finally met and he was at church all day. That's why, because he was a reformed Baptist. So he was at church in the morning. Uh, They have their big, huge uh, Sunday uh, meal, you know, the agape feast, uh, typical fried chicken, baked beans, uh, sweet tea from from the store. Uh, And then at night they'd get get together and the pastor would uh, preach a second sermon. And then they would spend the rest of the night talking about the sermon and so he was just on fire for God. And I was just not. And I, I was confused. You know, I just how can you be so sure of this? So once we got to talking, um, we would we spent like six months uh, t- 
talking at lunch, dinner, at breakfast, uh, during walks at the gym. Um, and he just got me reading all the, the great guys like Peter Kreeft, William Lane Craig. Um, I mean, the, 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 the uh, there are so many books that he got me. Uh, at that time, I was reading Josh McDowell. I know that these are all old, you know, evangelical apologists, but they got me thinking, you know, that maybe it is true that you can't get on a six foot ladder and, and grab the stars, you know, i.e., we can't. We can't know the ways of God. But if he climbs down a ladder and reveals himself to us, then we could know him. And so that's when I investigated the claims of Jesus Christ, uh, his resurrection. William Lane Craig, Gary Habermas, uh, Mike Licona, all these guys really helped me to see that the, the resurrection was a, a truly historical fact. And, and so that, you know, after about six, seven months, I had a massive conversion experience that just completely changed uh, from A to Z, was going to church every day. And this is at this time I was going to a Reformed Baptist church. And this Reformed Baptist church is it's not the typical church where you would go and you would be told, you know, if you feel God tugging on your heart, uh, pray this prayer, come down the aisle, somebody will be waiting afterwards to help you and guide you. Um, no, this was, they really tried to mimic uh, a revivalist culture uh, with fire and brimstone preaching, a lot of, uh, you know, preaching akin to like the old Presbyterian Jonathan Edwards, the sinners in the hands of an angry God, famous sermon he preached in the 1700s. Um, big into the Puritans, very Puritanical culture at this church. Um, and, and and so immediately uh, you are held accountable to live a holy life. Um, weekly, you are asked if you are keeping the commandments of God and, and, and publicly in front of other people. And they also get you into studying Koine Greek, Hebrew, uh, weekly Bible studies. Every Saturday morning, I went knocking on doors for about five hours. And I did that for five years straight. Um, and we would also go preaching at public parks. Uh, if anybody was at the University of Central Florida between 2005 and 2010, they may have seen me with my uh, John MacArthur study Bible on the free speech screen, um, preaching through the Book of Romans. Um, we used to get on buses and ask the bus driver for the microphone to read through the Bible for the people. Um, you know, did the whole scene, you know, um, abortion clinics, uh, standing up on podiums. I mean, we did it all. Um, and we saw a lot of people come to the Lord. We saw a lot of people leave the Lord. We saw a lot of pain, uh, a lot of hurt, uh, a lot of joys, a lot of praises. Um, but, you know, something had happened to me uh, in that particular church where it, the church began to split. And a lot of the people I love so dearly were, were you know, uh, fragmenting. And it led me to, to question into the origins of, 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 uh, of Christianity and where, where church government uh, derives from. And, and that led me down a horizon, you know, studying Lutheranism and uh, the Reformation. I realized that as, as a Baptist, we call ourselves Reformed Baptists, but that's kind of a, a misnomer because the, the original Baptists, the Anabaptists, were 
were against the Reformed quite a bit. And Luther, Calvin, Wingley, um, Boussier, I mean, all these guys would not have said that they were in any kind of fellowship with the the Anabaptists. Um, so I, I explored Reformation or the Reformations. Um, you know, you got the German, uh, you know, Geneva, England. You've got uh, the Swiss Reform. I mean, there's so many different theologies that came out of the Reformation. Um, and I, I found a happy home in the Anglican Church because I saw that uh, they weren't as extreme as I saw um, that I thought the Catholic and the Eastern churches were. And so I, I sort of pitched my tent, uh, if you, as it were, in, the, in a very high church Anglican setting where they believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. They believed in transubstantiation, which was a doctrine I had come to accept. Um, and, uh, and, and I, my soul was able to heal there. You know, I was able to say, you know what? Um, Christianity uh, doesn't stand or fall with that old reformed Baptist church that kind of disintegrated. Um, it, it's much larger than that. And, and there's actually a, a, a huge lineage going back 2000 years and not just to Luther who didn't even believe Baptists were Christians or that they were even saved. Um, and so uh, at the Anglican church, I, I had time for my soul to sort of rest because I had been reading so much and I, I was growing guilty over how much reliance I was putting on, on my on, on my brain intake. It was kind of like what I was doing in high school with, with atheism, philosophy, and skepticism. Um, and I, I, you know, I wasn't praying that often. And I, I, at the Anglican church, I met some just wonderful, tender hearted people that understood where I was coming from. And, and so I stood there and, and I had time to, you know, pray a lot, seek, seek the truth from God um, and sort of catch up my moral life with with where my mind was. Um, but when I was there, um, I, I, I continued to recognize that the early church had more to say um, and, and much more to be discontinuous with the Anglican reform. You know, the Church of England. And, and I was in fall. I was part, you know, it, this is one of the crazy things about my Anglican journey is that I thought I was joining the Anglican Church, but that's not really what it was. I was part of the APA, which is a split off of a split off of a split off of a split off. Um, because in the 1970s, the Church of England took a plunge towards certain um, effeminate revolutions, you know, woman into the clergy. Um, sort of the, the acceptance of homosexuality as consistent with being a disciple of Christ, uh, and just some other things, just, you know, how the world changed in the 1960s and the 1970s, the Anglican church sort of caught on with it. And so the church body that I was a part of was one of those who was, they were part of the continuum. They called it the Anglican continuum, where they were trying to keep the old conservative traditional values. So we were basically a, a, a split off, you know, of many different split offs. And, and so that concerned me, you know, uh, you know, is, was, did the Christian church understand itself to be in that way for the first 1500 years of, of the church. And 
so it, it forced me, my, it put a huge weight on my conscience to study more and more into uh, the claims of, of the Byzantine and the Coptic Orthodox, as well as the, the Catholic Church. And I didn't want to go to the Catholic Church because I thought I was too familiar with it. And um, being part of a, you know, the cultural Latino community that I was in, um, I just didn't see it as authentic. It, you know, it just... None of my family always went to mass, but we were never talking about the Lord like I knew Protestants did. And so it just there was this huge absence of authenticity in in, in my mind to Catholicism. Um, so I, I was prejudiced against the Catholic Church. So I, I wanted to go into the route of Eastern Orthodoxy the most. That's where I was uh, at the beginning of this point in my journey. And so, uh, you know, I would go to Eastern Orthodox services. I sat down with Orthodox priests, read everything I could possibly get, everything they recommended. Um, and I, I noticed that uh, I had to study the Catholic Church if I'm going if I'm going to study the Orthodox Church. There's just no possible uh, way to ignore it. And, and so I, I noticed that, um, you know, Catholicism has a lot of things to pick on. You know, it's so large. Um, it's it's the most reported on sector of the Christian faith. Um, there's a lot of media revenue from from uh, speaking about what goes on in the Catholic Church. And I noticed that you know, as I would study the Catholic Church, I would just, I just went in like a, you know like Metal Gear Solid, just trying to refute it. I, I had no intentions and no, no opening in my mind uh, to to become Catholic or be convinced of it. In fact, you could you know people who who've read my material back in like 2009, 2010, they could see that I was uh, very much opposed uh, to Catholic, to the Catholic Church, especially the papacy, and. You know, this mighty claim of an invincible office that has, you know, perfect succession and it's invincible to the end of time. Uh, I just sort of it was baffling to me how anybody could believe that. Um, but I, I noticed that, you know, I was in this business not to be sneaky. You know, I wanted to be authentic. So the best way to do that would be to put orthodoxy and Catholicism next to each other at their best, <laughs> not, not pre-mold a bad view of the Catholic Church next to the glorious, uh, you know, presence of the Orthodox tradition. Um, you have to put them up at their best and let them compete when they're at their best. Um, and so, because what happened was I would study the Catholic Church and I'd find a problem and that would immediately redound as a credit to the Orthodox Church. Any problem with the Catholic Church, boom, point for the Orthodox. Another problem with the Catholic Church, boom, another point. It was almost like the Orthodox were just getting negative credit from the Catholic critique. <laughs> um, and But then I said, you know, you can't do that, Eric. You can't do that. You know, you got to study the Catholic Church for what it claims to teach, for what it really is, um, don't define the whole by the by the you know corrupt corrupted few. And with orthodoxy as well, um, if you're going to intellectually and rigorously critique the Catholic Church on its own merits, 
You're going to have to do that also with the Orthodox Church. You can't just rely on the beauty of the hymns and the chants and the YouTube glory from all the ancient liturgies. That won't do it. That's not enough. That's not how truth claims work. Um, so when I started to study it in that way, um, my life became much more uncomfortable because I started to see the mounting of evidence for the truth of the Catholic claim. Um, and, and so I uh, eventually, you know, had to put in my papers with uh, the, the Anglican church I was at. Um, the rector there was, you know, he was very ecumenical, ecumenically minded fellow. Um, and he understood, you know, but I, I, I had to, we had to come into the Catholic church uh, by convictions. And so my wife and I, and uh, all of, at that time we had, you know, two boys or two or three boys. I can't remember exactly, but uh, so we came in and uh, you know, since then it's just, I've, I've never taken my eyes off of, of the Eastern Orthodox or the Coptic Orthodox. Um, it's, I, f I feel like God put a, a burden on me to continue to, to look at this. So I, I owe I, my interest in that has never, uh, you know, it has never sort of weaned. Um, and so I, I, once I got involved with internet, um, you know, with the social media life, um, I just sort of tried to, create a, a disputation hall, like in the old days you'd see in the old seminaries or the old universities. Uh, I wanted to create a sort of a virtual disputation hall um, to discuss this issue of the Catholic Church and the Orthodox schism. And, and so that's uh, largely my website is, is devoted to that. And it's been that way since, you know, for years now. Um, and, and then, you know, just sort of to wrap this up, I, I met uh, Michael Lofton, and, uh, you know, some of our other co-hosts on Reason and Theology, like Elijah, Elijah Yassi, uh, William Albrecht, and, and some others. There's, there were some other contributors we've had um, that just helped me on my journey. But in particular, Lofton and I had such a deep interest in this issue of the Greek and the Latin schism. And, and so um, if you see us on Reason and Theology, it's just, uh, we're always circling around that 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 topic but we also you know speak about just about anything else but um so that that's like that's like the uh you know the the the, the fast tour you know through those uh last 15 20 years of my life so well that's fantastic thank you for for sharing that uh, let's dig into a few things here and i think i think first of all my first question i want to ask you going back to your your encounter with this uh this guy in the dorm room i wonder for you so when you meet this person who's very, very zealous, very uh, you know, loves his faith, really, and I can relate to this guy. It sounds a lot like how I was in a certain stage of my evangelical uh, life, spending the whole day at church kind of thing. That was that was our jam. I, I wonder why for you wasn't your the, the Catholicism you were raised in? Why wasn't that your default? Like what made it? What made you follow him to the Baptist to the Reformed Baptist Church? Versus maybe causing you to dig deeper into the faith that you that you knew as a child. Was it that that that, that sameness with that, that familiarness was just too just too familiar for you? You know, uh, a lot of it had to do with just everyone I knew growing up was Catholic. Uh, you know, I, I I speak to generally here. Not everyone, obviously, um, but you know, just many children at school that I knew. Uh, whether they were, you know, uh, uh, 
following Christ, believed in Christ or didn't. Um, I just felt like it was uh, just sort of like a, it lacked it lacked the note of genuineness. And, I, and it, it, this stems largely because of my ignorance. You know, I didn't know what the Catholic Church was teaching. I didn't know what she was doing. So for communion, when I received my first communion, I had no idea it was the flesh and blood of the Savior. And I didn't even know that all the way into my teens. Um, so I just thought it was a a... a a nice little tasty snack right after mass. And we do it in we just something we do sort of like, why, why do you toast champagne? You know, it's kind of the same thing. So I, I mean, that, that redounds to my shame, obviously, but my formation probably also contributed to the fact that I, it was, it was rather um, less than, you know, sufficient. So it was just, I had no idea what the Catholic church taught. And so when I met this roommate of mine, he was always reading the Bible. So to me, the Bible, I mean, when I was growing up, we had a huge Bible in, in our tables, huge, huge, massive Bible, golden letters on the front. And I would always flip through it. Of course, I'd just look at the pictures. Um, But all those Caravaggio old Catholic medieval paintings always mesmerized me when I was growing up. And I felt like I was learning about that for the first time through this Baptist. So, you know, his marked up Bible, just it kind of got me thinking, well, it's it's kind of like if you want an engineer to build your city, you're going to go to those who are actually doing the math or actually doing the science or actually actually engaged in the physics of of how to do that. And so they, the Catholic upbringing I had, it, it was the appearance, appearance of people who didn't know if they just, they, they had this charade um, that, that was very pricey and had a lot of uh, visual st- stimul you know, visually stimulating aura, you know, icons and statues and the beautiful liturgy. But I saw in the, in this Baptist sort of like, the, the genuine, you know, trying to get into the wood of the Christian faith. And so I, I just sort of subconsciously or consciously thought that the Catholic Church just, they, through years and years of just um, decorating the Christian faith and not really piercing to the heart of the truth, they've created this monstrosity of a religion uh, where people didn't really know what they were worshiping, but they just did these outward things. So obviously a misperception, okay, all based on ignorance. Um, and and so that's, that's really what I think, you know, hooked me in uh, to this uh, reform. And then it wasn't just him. He, when he brought me to his church and the pastor was preaching, he was preaching for two hours out of the Bible. I mean, they had towels on the podium because he was, he was working, you know, he was sweating. Um, but he would take words apart, tell you what the lexical meaning is and the range of usage around the rest of the Bible, what this means, what it means to, to, for, the, for Jesus to be the Messiah. Like it was, it was just an intense um, eagerness to teach people 
what the Christian faith is. And, and so that's just, it just sort of hooked me in, you know? Yeah. yeah. And what did you begin to, cause I've been, I've been here too. And this was for me, one of the catalysts to my conversion is you experience as church began to splinter and fall apart. Right. And then you begin to ask questions about, well, what makes a church and, and where does this come from? And these kinds of things for me, it was around the issue of uh, a gender ideology and, and same sex marriage. This was a kind of a breaking topic in the church I was going to with my wife as a non-denominational church. We had no faith statement on what we believed about in terms of same-sex marriage. We had no denominational backing, really, in any real way. And so we were figuring things out for ourselves. And I remember getting into different debates with different, different friends in this church, and you know, we're looking at the same passage of the Bible and coming to different conclusions based on our, our own lenses. And I kind of went, wait, <laughs> we're all doing the same thing from the same book. Why, why can't we agree? And then watching that kind of splinter, that for me was a was a, a, a cause to look into the Catholic faith. And I think for you, it sounds like that was a cause to begin asking about, about how is the church structured and, and, and the history of the church. So, I mean, what did you begin to, to see as you peeled back that onion and, and, and saw this church falling apart? Like, what kind of questions were you asking at, at that point? Yeah, that's just a fantastic question. Uh, really what happened was, uh, you know, this Baptist church, their greatest strength was their greatest weakness. So when when the when this pastor got up to preach, he would emphasize repeatedly, don't believe what I'm saying. Don't believe what I'm saying, you know. And he'd hold up the Bible and say, you follow this. If I'm not in conformity with this, you know, don't believe me, you know. So they put an intense pressure on individuals to investigate and verify and, and and validate and to you know to 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 be certain and more certain um and so i that's what i did i mean i i i spent hours in bible study and i mean i just i bought so many books read so many books so quickly um and i started to read um other baptists who would disagree about certain things that we believed at my church. And eventually I came to be much more um, classically reformed in my thinking about scripture, exegesis, and that clashed with the pastor, you know? And so, uh, you know, I, I, I had, you know, certain elders sort of, you know, trying to help me in my, walk and journey with Christ who would say, you know, Eric, you're starting to, you know, you're start, you're starting to sound like you want to correct our pastor, <laughs> you know? And I would say, well, I, I mean, I, I do certain, I do think that he's wrong on certain things. Maybe they're not essential differences. Um, but, you know, I'd always get these uh, admonitions, you know, he's been studying the Bible for 30 years, you know, and you've only been studying the Bible for five years. You know, he knows Greek like the back of his hand. You're still studying. Um, and so there was this intense pressure at the same time, like, well, you need to verify that the pastor's right. But then if you start to disagree with the yeah, pastor, right, right. There, there's these appeals to authority, you know. And um, then the, and there's also this appeal to the necessity to be humble. Like, you need to humble yourself. Eric, you're, you know, you may have, uh, you know, you may think you're right, but 
you know, our pastor is a very holy and knowledgeable man. Well, eventually what ended up happening was the pastor ended up having changes in his views on theology that came more into agreement with with where I was. And, and so that really showed me that, you know, this could be a problem, you know, and 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 so the you know the pastor there he just he went to seminary in Texas and he 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 heard a voice telling him that he had to move to Orlando to start a church and so they came you know he graduated with a doctor in theology came to Orlando started knocking on doors um hey we're renting a cafeteria in a elementary school we're preaching the word of god we're saving souls we're baptizing you know just come and join come and join and then he would create a, a baptismal membership class and then he would start to discipline the congregation you know he, he was taking on the the role of a pastor and and it came it dawned on me as years went by and i and i was studying these things that that he just created what was there like it was all him <laughs> we were not part of a larger baptist church society or anything like that this was just and i look back and it, it obviously it was a, a cultic uh schismatic group, a sect, um, but it was just enriched with many things of God, you know, so it, it, it sort of gave this huge wave of authenticity, like I was talking about. And, and, but if you start to peel the onion and say, well, why do you believe this? And why do you believe this? And why do you believe this? Um, it was, it all came down to, well, this is what the pastor says. But then the pastor himself is equally dogmatic that we shouldn't just follow him, but what the word says. <laughs> so, so there's this this internal combustion of we got to follow the pastor because, he, you know, the Bible says obey your leaders. But then the leader is telling us that we need to equip ourselves to study the word to make sure that he's in conformity with the word. So it's a, like I said, their greatest strength was their greatest weakness. They got people in the Bible. They got people studying Greek, Hebrew. They got people reading commentaries. I mean, just some of the smartest people I know uh, are, are, were there. Some of them are still there. It's, it's sort of resurrected as time went on. Um, but uh, with a different pastor. But uh, so that really led me to say, you know what, I need, I can't go here anymore. I, I've got to go where people are at least willing to talk about the alternatives. Um, and, you know, I, that's when I learned about Luther, you know, and I, I learned how we used to applaud Luther, you know, Martin Luther, you know, he's the one who, uh, you know, saved the Christian day and 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 opened the gates of heaven with, you know, justification by faith alone, by the sole imputation of Christ's righteousness, all this stuff. And, and but you go back in history and, and and Luther was far more Catholic. I think if we if Luther walked in our Baptist church, we would have thought he was a Roman Catholic. <laughs> Just because of his views on the sacraments, baptismal regeneration, the Lord's Supper, uh, even church government to, to an extent. Um, so th that that really, you know, we would condemn Luther at that church. He wouldn't be even welcomed. And yet we would have seminars on the great reformers. 
Um, and so that really, it, it opened up my eyes that I needed to, I needed to explore the horizon. I was kind of like in Plato's cave. I was in Plato's cave and, and I was just stuck in this, this, this self-constructed version of Christianity. Um, and, and then I, you know, I'd see the shadows. And finally, when I got out to see what's really making the shadows is when I started to see the whole, the whole horizon of the Christian history that was behind me. And that's when I, I think I started to have a much more open mind and, and I, I stepped foot in a different direction. Yeah, that's really interesting because there is that. That's a great analogy you've used there. Because of course, yeah, you you you're in this, and I'm in a similar boat. I was became uh, Christian out of a non kind of non religious household at the age of fifteen, so in high school, and then I, you know, I landed in in a, um, a Pentecostal, nominally Pentecostal church that was just kind of close to our house, and I had some friends going to, and it wasn't really until I went away to university and had to kind of strike it on my own and, and find my own, my own place that I realized that I was part of a really small kind of ecosystem of Christianity. And there was this whole big wider world of Christianity. And I don't think at the time I even thought that Catholics were Christian at this point yet. Cause I, I, I had kind of grown up my faith thinking that they were kind of a, what do you say? A, a pharisaical version of, of Christianity, yes. right? They, they, they're right. the Pharisees. They were the ones doing the ritual prayers and these kind of things and, and all, you know, that kind of stuff. So right. that's right. That's where I viewed them. Right. But then even just to see a larger Christian world was, was eye opening and so you stepped out and out of that cave, right? And you found the this Anglican church, which I guess for you was a bit more like the the church governance you had read about, right? It kind of fit more in the idea of there's a lineage here, we're connected to a past, a church started somewhere versus a guy renting a gym and beginning to assemble right. apostles, right? Yeah, yeah. No, they. I mean, they eventually got a a, a pretty huge building and everything. Yeah, but it, the, but like you said, it was it was its own ecosystem, and um, you know, the what happened was studying the Christian past. Um, I remember reading a book. Uh, I was reading the Anglican books uh for evangelicals on the canterbury trail yeah, yeah, you know yeah. basically coming back to a sacramental episcopal worldview or at least a you know ecclesiological view um and i i began to realize wow all those nutrients and 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 you know the the dna that i was studying of like let's call it a plant for an as a metaphor or an analogy I was so deep into the thick of the plant cell and all the insides. And now I began to see where it's actually planted in the garden in which it's planted in the roots of where it all came from. You know, that was the transition of studying, uh, studying the, the early church fathers, the seven ecumenical councils and, uh, so that's where at the Anglican Church, I, I, I realized I was I was very I was confirmed that uh, the Baptist the Baptist sect that I was a part of was just uh, it, it, it had no justification for itself. You know, yeah. uh, so it was just an outlier. And 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 but then the Anglican Church, you know, yes, it did have a, a an Episcopal structure and it did have uh, a, a very um, sacramental 
uh, soteriological view, all those things that one would, anybody would want to see who, who are being, uh, you know, uh, given that mystique of the church fathers and, and the, and the early church. Um, but again, it, it goes back to who were we? You know, we were we were this APA movement, Anglican Province of America. Uh, we had to rename ourselves, you know, because we we weren't part of this group and we weren't part of that group. And I noticed that uh, the beliefs of the Anglican Church we weren't even following the thirty nine articles of of the of the you know the, the Christian religion that the uh, that the English divines were were you know uh, set on following. We didn't canonize saints. Uh, we didn't enforce uh, you know, uh, that you had to believe in the real presence of Christ. That was optional, you know. So I, I, I began to see like this is great. I, I love what they're doing here. Um, I love that they're open to history. You know, they they love Scott Hahn, the the rector that I was under. He loved Scott Hahn. Loved a lot of different Catholic authors. Um, so he was very ecumenically minded. Um, but I, again, I was, I, I was, you know, perhaps naive, you know, now I look back and, and I was on the quest for the true church, you know, now I look back and I think to myself, you know, you could have used a lot more humility and patience. Um, but I, I was, I, I wasn't in this just to feel comfortable. I wasn't in this just to be, um, sort of wooed by the English patrimony, which I love. I love, I'm part of the Anglican ordinary and I still love, still love the English patrimony of spirituality, the book of common prayer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But I I realized that there were certain foundational teachings that Christians invariably held for, you know, well over a thousand years that we just simply revised you know, as close as we looked and as close as we mimicked uh, the early Episcopal sacramental structure. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. You answered my question for me in, in advance. What was it that that kind of drew you to go, to go deeper? And and why does it matter that there is this true church? Because I think a lot of people would be comfortable just saying, I mean, I became Catholic and, and I thought all my friends would follow me from my non-denominational church. I mean, my wife and I converted and, and it was kind of like a bummer that nobody else came. Kind of came with us, uh, but there's the you know we were driven in a certain way to find this true church. We felt like it was important to be connected to it, what Christians believe for the majority of Christian history and trace that back to the beginning of the church. But not everyone sees that as being a, a, a live issue, an important yeah. thing. But when when I sit here and hear you say, we realized that we had revised some of these things that Christians had believed you know for thousands of years. That seems like a, a crazy thing to do, right? Like if you're sitting yeah. in that Baptist church, for example, or even the Anglican <laughs> church, and you go, "Oh yeah, this thing, this here, this communion thing is just a symbol in the, in the, in the Baptist church," you really have to press pause for a minute and go, "This is really a novel, like a new invention." That's kind of That's scary, right. right? It's frightening. Yeah, but you don't see the terror of it until you until you learn, you know, just how much. Uh, estranged it, it is from the from the mainstay of the Christian world, um, but you know what really. While I was an Anglican and I was studying, you know, the the issue of uh, the uh, the true church, and uh, you know, I I came to the the realization that apostolic succession 
you know, the Anglicans talk about that, and, and we talked about that. I, the rector that that of our Anglican parish um, had a picture of, you know, he had a tree. A, 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 it was like a tree of names just stemming all the way back to the Apostle Andrew. Um, so we boasted in apostolic succession. We believed it. We believed it was necessary. Just like the Orthodox, just like the, the Catholics, just like the Coptics and the the rest of the Eastern Oriental Orthodox world. Um, but I came to realize that in the early church, um, it, even apostolic succession has a rule. <laughs> in other words, there's certain norms to know what the definition of apostolic succession is. You can't just have apostolic succession. You know, there's got to be a norm to it because you have com- you have competitors. You have Episcopal bodies that all claim apostolic succession. They all claim the authority to teach with the authority of Christ's teaching office. That's what, you know, magisterium, as, as your listeners already know, that just means magisterium, the teaching office of Christ extended into the world through the church. Um, and and I, I, I realized, you know, number one, intellectually, um, this thing has to maintain coherence. When you have, when you have fracturings and when you have, when, when schisms start to solidify and crystallize and then remain permanent over years and years and years, and they both can claim apostolic succession, how do you know which of the two or which of the three or more um, is the, because apostolic succession only matters if we can identify the one succession, you know, the one that is real and full and carries the apostolic gifts that Christ gave. If we're going to, if we're going to envision the possibility of having hundreds of, you know, apostolically succeeded Episcopal communities that all divide with each other, believe different things and are at war in, in doctrine and faith. That it would be like saying, I just built a really strong door for, to protect my house. And then I made a really, really intricate key that you would need to open it. And then I gave a copy to everyone in the neighborhood. <laughs> it's like, why would Christ create something like this? So precious, so dependent on a visible coherence, just to then be thrown to the winds uh, of just constant perpetual fragmentation. And so that's that's where the whole logic of the papal office, you know, c- came to my mind and said, you know what, I'll be darned, you know, this <laughs> this makes perfect sense, you know. And it wasn't just a logical process. The early church fathers were claiming this logic. It would be one thing if we said, you know what, as an engineer, it would be really nice to have um, a, a one head to sort of um, give visible unity to the masses, you know. It, that'd be one thing because then it wouldn't it would lack the the note of history it would lack the note of of apostolic revelation right but but when you have the early church fathers saying that that Christ created this for this purpose then you have the a priori notion you know it's there but then you have the a posteriori confirmation that 
this is actually claimed in history, in the Bible, and in the tradition. So you have those two things together, and it, it serves as a very powerful, persuasive argument for the Catholic Church. Was this then your what convinced you, what tipped you over? Because there you were kind of, you were an Anglican, investigating Catholic, Orthodox, these other various older, much more ancient uh, Christian faiths, and you became Catholic. So was it on this, was it on this, the papacy that really convinced you that this was that, that true church you were searching for? Yeah. So, you know, the Orthodox uh, church, it, it was very, uh, tempting for me. And I obviously, I even became a catechumen at one time. Um, and you know, orthodoxy, you know, I have a lot of respect for the Eastern Orthodox Church. I have a lot of Orthodox friends um, in the clergy, uh, of immense respect. Uh, not many people know this, but when Reason in Theology started, uh, Michael was Orthodox. Yeah, yeah, and 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 so was our, our partner co-host at the time. I was the only Catholic, you know. Um, so I, I, I you know, my door is always open to friendship with the Orthodox, but it has a lot of YouTube glory. And, and when I say that, what I mean is, um, you type in Eastern Orthodoxy, and it's just got so much good stuff to see online. How how often do people match that? with a real experience, you know? And so that's, I think I needed that. I became a catechumen. I started to talk with, you know, real Orthodox Christians. And, uh, and I, I began to realize that certain beliefs of the Orthodox church, uh, like the Anglican church, you know, there were revisions, you know, and, and the, the, in particular, the arguments against the, the filioque and the papacy, you know, um, I began to, to notice that they were actually uh, de-Catholicizing in that way. Uh, and what I mean by that is filioque and the papacy, for example, let's just say, okay, I, I, I don't want to just assert that this is true for your listeners, okay? Of course, I believe it's true. Um, but let's just say, for the sake of argument, that at least the Latin West, for the first 1,000 years, believed in the papacy and believed in the filioque. Okay. Well, the Latin West, according to the Orthodox, is their Western department, right? Because they believe that Roman Catholicism was created in the 11th century. You see? So the Latin West of the first 1,000 years, that's just the Eastern Orthodox Church in the West for them. That's, that's their tree stuff. You know, that's their roots. So to say that it's a heresy to believe in the filioque in the papacy would mean to admit that half of your trunk, at least for the first 1,000 years, was rotten. Whereas, whereas the Catholic Church can embrace the Eastern theology of the first 1,000 years and the Western theology of the first 1,000 years. And so we have a full tree, you see. And so um, as much as I wanted to be Orthodox, I couldn't live with that kind of consequence, you know, of ha half the calendar of saints being at best innocent heretics. It's, it's, it's a tough, tough bargain. 
Um, and so that's, you know, that's, and, and, uh, you know, in the Catholic church is very challenging. You know, there's, there's a lot of challenge right now, uh, for people to be Catholic. Um, and it, it goes to show that, uh, you know, some people now, you know, are leaving to the Orthodox church or the Protestant church because of things that are going on in the Catholic church. A lot of people make those decisions without a lot of critical analysis. And I, you should see my message box. I have people, you know, I have so many messages that I can't get to. And by the way, if you're listening and you have a message that I haven't answered, I'm sorry. Um, but a lot of people on the fence, you know, going, you know, oh, I need to go to the Orthodox Church. I need to, you know, I need to leave the Catholic Church. Um, they make a lot of decisions based on uh on things that on, on problems that they're never going to really get rid of. You, you're going to have similar problems in the Orthodox church. You can have similar pro- problems in the ortho in the Protestant church. And I've seen it because over the years, Catholics who went Orthodox, they'll come back to me one, two, three years later. And they'll say, you know what, Eric, you were right. You know, I, I, I don't necessarily want to go back to the Catholic church, but if I would have known now what I do about the Orthodox church, then I would not have been so hasty, you know? And, and so it's kind of like, you know, American consumerism, whenever, whenever the, there's two alternatives, whenever one of the two stinks, it's like, we automatically go to the other alternative. So for people today, it's the Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. Well, oh my goodness, there's all this bad stuff happening in the Catholic Church. Well, we automatically go with the alternative. But you ask any engineer, any scientist, any mathematician, any physicist, is that how you guys make decisions? Where If you have two alternatives, uh, one perhaps doesn't satisfy, so automatically the other one is true? Uh, I mean, that's a complete depletion of analytical thinking. It doesn't work in any other field, you know. And and so I just, I encourage people, you know, to just be patient and to study both sides and, and study, make them look, give them the best uh, posture, you know, give them the, the best form. You know, don't just study the Catholic Church based off of the the, the bad parts. And don't even, the, the same with the Orthodox Church, because there's a lot of Orthodox who convert to the Catholic Church because of their nausea with problems in the Orthodox Church. You know, so I try to bring, try to bring people back to the, the, the truth of the faith. You know, what did Christ teach? What did the church fathers teach? What is the tradition that has survived? Um, and of course, you know, St. John Henry Newman helped me a lot in that regard. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that way of putting it, that look at those things, compare those things, the best of those things, not just the worst. That goes to a lot of people who are looking at becoming Catholic out of evangelical traditions too, right? That was, and you mentioned this too, these misunderstandings we have. You look back at your, at your Catholic past and there's some misunderstandings that you had about your faith, some ignorance. And I certainly was the same way as an evangelical. If I had known what I had known about what Catholics actually believed much sooner, I would have probably converted much, much sooner. But I had this ignorance about the Catholic faith that now I spend years of this podcast trying to undo and, and share the truth of the, <laughs> of the faith. But there is that uh, many cases we're, we're looking at not the best versions of these right. things when it comes to comparing orthodoxy and Catholicism or, or looking at converting to Catholicism out of Protestantism. We're not looking at the best versions. I think that's a, a great way of putting it, Eric. I have one last question for you, and it's this. 
speaking to those people who are listening to this show who are maybe non-Catholic or, or, or new Catholics or are looking at b- becoming Catholic, what did you think when 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 you ask the question, you know, where's the where's the true church? That for a lot of people I mentioned before isn't even a live issue because they think, well, I'm in a church and this is a ch- this is a church. There's no true church. We're all Christians. We all believe in Jesus. That that's good enough, right? This is that invisible body of Christ that I would believe is an evangelical. And a lot of evangelicals uh, believe there's no actual real physical church. We're all we're all the church. But you begin to ask these questions, and if somebody's listened to this far to the to the podcast or the video, they've they're confronting these questions of is is there a true church? So if they ask that question, is is there a true church? Where is the true church? What advice would you give them to begin to answer that question? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, it was a question I started to ask myself too. You know, years ago as a Protestant, and where I started was I realized that Jesus Christ, being the Lord and Savior of the world, only spent three years in active ministry. And what? how can he be, how can he have so much reach, you know, his lordship, his office of Savior, how can it be of the whole world for all, er- for all eras and all epochs? How could, how could a man, have that much reach in three years. And I realized that much of those three years, he was preparing 12 men who would take up his role. You know, so he he was baptized in the Jordan, went into the wilderness, was tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. Then he immediately began to preach. He preached, he went from town to town, synagogue to synagogue. Then he sent the apostles. He was forming these 12 men, teaching them what he knew. And then at the end of his life, he sent them out with his authority. So Christianity, you know, so you have three years of Christ's own ministry. Now we have, you know, nearly 2,000 years uh, of church history Christ spent a lot of his time preparing for how the data of his teaching, the content of his teaching, would be protected and transmitted. And that, re- that required authority. That's why when Christ, when, when, when Christ ascended into heaven, um, he told the apostles, he says, Go to Jerusalem and wait. Wait a minute. If we know the truth and we 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 could just go out right now, brother, we just go out and preach. Like for Christ, that's not how it was. You know, they had to wait in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's not just a, a, a floating content of truth. It's that. But then there's the apostolic witness or the apostolic office. And it's not just that, obviously, because you had the truth, you had the apostles, and Christ still said to wait. So then that's when the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost. So now you've got the truth, the apostolic witness or the apostolic office, and then the the animation of the Holy Spirit to give all of that legs. You know, and then if you read in how the, the book of Acts, 
the apostle Paul of, you know, every Protestant, you know, has a, a special reverence for the apostle Paul. He wrote most of the new Testament, right? And yet what happened when there was a dispute over the issue of whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses to be saved? Did he just say, well, I'm an apostle, Christ sent me, and what I say is true? Oh, he hints at that, no doubt. And he could have done that, and he would have been right. But him and Barnabas went to Jerusalem. So here's a man who had the power of an infallible pen. You know, all, all Protestants believe that. <laughs> they all believe in the Pauline infallibility, right? And yet, even he recognizes that there's a certain hierarchical function to the church. And then even when the apostles were given this question, they didn't just say, oh, why? We would have just wrote a letter. You just had to write us a letter. We would have written you the answer. No, even they know that they needed to assemble into a council, you know? And so you, you start to see that the way that church decisions are reached, it's, it's not done just by investigate what the truth is. Everybody gets to investigate what the truth is. No, Christ created an apostolic embassy. You know, I say embassy. It's, it's an apostolic representation that had, you know, flesh and bones. You know, if you just have guts, the, the truth, but no skeleton to uphold it, you don't have a, a standing human being. And if you just have a skeleton with no truth, you don't have a human being. So Christ created both the, 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 the structure, the skeletal structure of the church and the, 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 the innards, the heart, the lungs, you know, all of those things we see that in the early church. So the question is, if it was created that way, why would it change essentially after that? And you could just start there. You know, and th there's several books that I would recommend. We could spend hours going through the recommendations. <laughs> I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to, you know, spend that time. But if you, if you get the writings of, uh, if you get the writings of uh, uh, Butler, Chris, uh, C, uh, Christopher Basil Butler, um, he was an Anglican who converted to the uh, Catholic Church and he served as a Pariti at the Second Vatican Council. Um, I can't tell you how much this author has immensely shaped my thinking. Uh, he wrote it. He wrote a, It's all on. A, it's all written for Protestants. All his works are written for Protestants, helping them to understand the logic, the truth, and the historical veracity of the Catholic Church. Um, and and uh, you know, it, it, he has a book called Church and Unity. He has a book called The Idea of the Church. Um, just look them up on BookFinder, Amazon. Uh, uh, you could go to uh, abebooks.com, abebooks.com. Type in his name and you'll see, just get anything he wrote. He's a very good author. Um, so I would just recommend very simply is that go back and study the Bible and see what was Christ doing with the apostles. And then what were the apostles themselves doing? And then you could venture off into the early church. I think Joe, Joe Heschmeyer, has a, a new book uh, called The Early Church Was Catholic. Recommend it. I recommend it to everybody. It's, you know, it's got up-to-date defenses. You know, because some people are still 
as much as much value as they have, you know, Carl Keating and all the older books from the the late, you know, early 80s, 90s. But Joe, Joe Heschmeyer has an updated, you know, he's he's taking in a lot of the the new stuff that Protestants are asking. And so that's one another book I'd I'd recommend. Oh, that's fantastic. He'll be a guest in the show, I think, uh, maybe shortly after you. So, Oh, great. Well, <laughs> that's go. a good trailer for him. Thing. Now, if you want to read things from you, Eric, where can they go? Because you've got some fantastic stuff out there. I've read it and followed you for, for a long time now, and it's, it's, it's great stuff. So where can they find you? Where can they follow you? Where can they read and hear and watch more of you, Eric? Well, that's interesting. You know, I have a, I have a book. Um, I have a book on the papacy and the orthodox. So it's basically 10 years of my research put into writing. Um, I, I did it mainly for my sons. I have six boys. And I thought to myself, what's, what's one of the greatest gifts I can give them? Well, I can take what's invisible and in my mind, which in, inevitably is going to deteriorate one day, uh, and put it on record. You know, I, even if they, you know, let's just say, God forbid, you know, they don't agree with it when they get older for some, you know, strange reason. Um, they at least have my work, you know. So I did it mainly. I wrote this manuscript. And it's been done for a long time, but it's about 800 pages. And so Emmaus Academic, which is uh, the publishing sector of St. Paul Center uh, under Scott Hahn, um, they they saw the manuscript, they peer-reviewed it, they loved it, and so they decided to, to go ahead with publishing it, but it is taking a long time because it is a large book. Um, and uh, that will be out, uh, it looks like May, June of this year. Uh, so look for that. I've also finished a manuscript on the Filioque, which, you know, um, that one will probably take longer to publish. Um, I may self-publish it. I don't know. If I do self-publish it, it would be out much sooner. But um, so that's the second thing to look for. Um, the, the And then there's something that people might want to get their hands on now. Uh, I actually self-published a book called Melchizedek and the Last Supper. And it actually just came on Amazon like two days ago. Um, so if you type in my name, Eric Ibarra, in Amazon, uh, or just type in Melchizedek in the Last Supper, um, it's a small little 112-page monograph on uh, the Old Testament proof of the Eucharist, the Catholic, Catholic Eucharistic transubstantiation and the sacrifice of the Mass. And in the introduction of that book, I tell the reader that if I can show you from the Bible that transubstantiation and the sacrifice of the mass are true from the scriptures, then that, that will help the Protestant because now he'll know that he can't join a church that rejects that teaching. So, you know, it kind of narrows you down to the Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Oriental Orthodox. So you, your journey's not over, you know? Um, but uh, I think it will it'll give a lot of Protestant inquirers the confidence they need to know that um, if they want to be true to the Bible, they have to be true to the Eucharist. And so that's a book that I'm excited to hear, get a lot of feedback on. And then other than that, my website, ericybard.org, I've got, you know, uh, periodically uh, articles and interviews that co-op there. 
Um, so feel free to, 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 to read uh, what I have there. Well, that's fantastic, Eric. Congratulations on the forthcoming book. That is fantastic. And one of my very favorite publishing houses. So that's that's a huge credit to your work, your life's work, and, and, and the quality of it. That's just absolutely fantastic. And I'll Thank point you. listeners to all those different places. I'll put links in the show notes, of course. And... Seriously, thank you. This has been a pleasure. I hope not our not our last conversation because I can see a lot of different directions we can go in on this show. Yes. And yes. you were a fantastic guest for it. So thank you so much, Eric. I want to say God bless you and the work you are doing for the church. And thank you so much on behalf of all the listeners for being here today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it, folks. My conversation with Eric Ibarra on Where is the True Church. I think that was fantastic. What a, what a great guy. Eric is a fantastic guy. We talked for a bit after I hit the, the stop button, and he's got a great book coming out. He's got a lot going on and took the time to be here on this show. And I'll definitely have him back because he has a lot more to say on these kinds of topics. He's a great, I think, guest, a good fit for this show. TheCordialCatholic.com is our website. We're at CordialCatholic on Instagram and Twitter. YouTube.com slash TheCordialCatholic and TheCordialCatholic on Facebook. Please find us there. Follow us. That helps this thing to keep on going and, and growing, of course. If you aren't subscribed to our YouTube channel, that's a great way you can help the show. Subscribe, share those videos, and please help spread the word on things like this. I think this is stuff that, that people would love to hear. I really do cordialcatholic at gmail.com is my email address i get lots of emails so please have patience if you can i'll get back to you as soon as i can and thank you for your emails i love to hear from you guys here where you're listening from who you are why you listen and why you keep on listening week after week patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic to support this show. Please rate us and review the show on, on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. Please pray for me, of course, know that I am praying for you too each and every week. And thank you. Thank you for listening to this show. And it's a real blessing to do this. So thanks, guys. Really. God bless. Take care. And I'll talk to you again next week. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.